We say thank you for the political freedom you've given us in this place. Lord, we know that that is not a given uh, in many places in the world. Father, more so, though, we thank you for the spiritual freedom you've given us through your Son. That we can be called sons and daughters of God, heirs with Christ in him. Free from the law of sin and death, free from, from the consequence of sin. Separation from you. Lord, we thank you that we can be united with our brothers and sisters in Charleston, in Iran, in China, in North Korea, in the uttermost parts of the world through your spirit, through prayer, through intercession. Lord, through the fellowship of your word. Help us to remember them in our prayer. Help us to truly intercede for them on our knees. Lord, help us to not lose sight of your call, of your conviction, of the building of your kingdom. Lord, we want to do our part here in whatever way it looks like. Build your kingdom in us, we pray. Father, I pray for all the fathers here, spiritual and natural. God, we thank you for their lives, for their examples, for their sacrifice. Lord, help them to continue to lead their families, lead those that you've put under them as they look to you and follow you. God, give them the strength, the energy, the humility they need to serve you even more. Father, we pray that you'd be with the families today. God, bless them. Bless their time together. Lord, we pray for those who, who would look at their lives and feel like something has been missed because they don't have that fatherly figure or at least a godly one in their lives. Lord, we pray for comfort. Lord, we pray for your, their eyes to be open to who you are and who you can and will be in their life as their heavenly father. Lord, in your ability, your, your desire even to make up that difference because you call them son or daughter. So Jesus, again, we give this morning, this time together with you. We ask that you bless the, the reading and teaching of your word. Lord, that it would be your words and not mine. We all said together, amen. I guess I need notes. I could try without, but. So we're going to do a, did you already know? Oh. We're going to do a character study on Mordecai. Today's message is titled The Legend of Mordecai. <laughs> to me, it sounds kind of fight club-ish and fun and manly. Maybe we'll make a screenplay out of it soon. Kind of reminds me of the book of Eli, which is one of my favorite movies. Not for all of you. It's a little violent. Uh, as we know, Esther um, is set, uh, or the events took place in about 483 to 473 B.C., uh, as we just talked about in Persia. Uh, it's interesting because there's no specific mention of God, and yet to me that makes the book uh, the word, all that more special, and we'll get into that as we go about Esther. 
Uh, as we talked about last week in setting it up, it's about the, the providence of God. Uh, that word providence uh, comes from the Latin, at least our English word of providence comes from the Latin provideo, which means foresight. Realizing that God is always working in and through and among our lives for his purpose, even uh, in and through at times, not always, but at times through the non-believer to bring about and accomplish his will on earth. One scholar explains it this way as far as providence is concerned. He says, God's attention, or he defines as God's attention concentrated everywhere. Providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. I would alter that just slightly and say God's attention concentrated everywhere, always, and throughout. So Esther, the book, was named after Esther, the queen. And we, if we've been in Christianity in church for a while, we've probably come across her story or heard it in some way, some shape or form. Uh, she's very much, Esther is very much the, the, the hero of the story, uh, I think, if you ask just about anybody. Uh, today, though, I want to make a case, at least, for Mordecai. Uh, not questioning the biblical authors, but I think it could easily have been called the Book of Mordecai. And so uh, that's why today we have the legend of Mordecai. Mordecai is mentioned 58 times in the book of Esther. 58 times. I didn't do the counts myself, but I would bet that that's definitely more than Seth in the Bible, or Abel, or Cain. Uh, more than maybe even a guy like Ezra, uh, who's got his own book. Uh, so he plays a significant role, as we know, in the book of Esther. But I think also uh, there is a lot more to learn by looking at his life than we might uh otherwise expect right away what we see from Mordecai I think and, and kind of taking from the beginning to the end of our study today is, is a, a progression of a, of a character of a man uh, from one who maybe was lacking in identity or lacking in distinction as, as a uh, Jew as somebody as a part of the people of God uh, to the end of the story where he is championing the purpose of God uh, in his people. And so let's start here in chapter 2, verse 5. So we're going to kind of fast forward through the book to look at Mordecai. Like I said, we'll continue our regular study and kind of um, go over some of these other things again. So we're not necessarily getting in-depth into the study, but in-depth into the character, or in-depth into the story, but we're getting in-depth into the character of Mordecai. So uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemaiah, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives and carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So from this, we know for a fact, because it's in the word, is that uh, Mordecai was a Jew. 
his people had been exiled. We know that from several places in the Bible and history. Uh, his particular tribe or his lineage uh, being taken away under Nebuchadnezzar about, I think it was about 120 years prior to uh, what we're looking at now. Mordecai himself, uh, it's unlikely, was taken away uh, but born into captivity. The, the wording there um, can be a little confusing. But we're dealing with a time in, in history and a time in the history of the Jewish nation where, again, they are in captivity. They're in exile. Uh, they are living as a minority in a heathen land. And um, as Jews, they, they had a target on their back often, as we know. Like I said, Mordecai is mentioned 58 times in Esther, seven times he's mentioned as a Jew. So uh, his tie... Uh, frequently reinforced in the in, uh, his his identity frequently reinforced in the book, and that'll be important as we move on. So, though we know for a fact, and we know that he's mentioned as a Jew frequently, we we come upon the scene of Mordecai and Esther, and we realize though that that though Jewish, they were not known as Jews from the story. It took a while for their identity to be revealed. And what that says to us and what we may have glossed over in the past is we've read Esther and kind of looked for the action. Esther is a great book. You know, like it, it, it could be read as a movie script. It is a movie script. It is a movie. Uh, it's, you know, like I said last week, it, it's one of the favorite books of, of the Jewish nation. It, it's, you know, a story that we can, can be told and heard over and over and over again. Uh, but often with those types of books, with those types of stories in the Bible, we're, we can get lost in the plot or in the main headings and, and kind of lose the uh, subtle t- sub- the details, the subtleties. This is a lot better than last week, by the way, so, you know, I'll take it. Um, still a little under the weather and a little tongue-tied, but um, God's good. So for the first chunk of Esther and of the story, we know that Mordecai had ordered Esther, as we'll see down the line here when she's in the king's court, to hide her identity as a Jewish woman. Now, if you know anything about cultural Judaism and and even traditional religious Judaism, it's kind of hard to hide that identity if you're following the law. So this likely meant that that Mordecai and Esther did not keep kosher with their diet. It's likely that they made compromises to blend in with the culture around them. So for me, it's not a large assumption to make that maybe the remnant, the 50,000 in the first wave with uh, who went back to repopulate Israel some 20 years before this setting, I think, maybe 30 it's it's that they would have looked at that type of Jewish person that the Mordecai or Esther represented and said, you, you guys, you're missing it. You're, you're not serving Yahweh in the way that you should. You're not following the law of Moses. You're not representing us as a nation or us as a people as we've been called to. Beyond that, not only are you not living kosher, but you're, you're living just like the world, as we would say today. 
we blend in with those heathens that took us out of our land, destroyed our nation, and scattered us across the earth. If we're being real, that's likely the characterization that we should have as we study the book of Esther, as we study Mordecai today. We are not necessarily looking at the Mordecai and the Esther who, who we come to understand, who are growing our eyes through the book, through the scripture, and you know, who, who they are at the end of the story. What's interesting about Mordecai, and having said that, as a, as a Benjaminite, he was in the lineage of Saul, likely uh, tied at least by blood to the royal lineage of the kings of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was the smallest, uh, I would call the underdog, and yet they were the fiercest warriors among all the tribes. Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And so, to me, there, there's a little foreshadowment there of who Mordecai was called and meant to be, a part of his identity that maybe he hadn't kept or maybe hadn't owned uh, until the time came where he had to, where he was called to. So we, we know the story of Esther. We know uh, her timing and her calling, and, and yet uh, there's a parallel here of Mordecai and his ownership of his identity in God, his identity as a, as a Jewish man, part of the heritage, a part of the people of God that he had to rise up to. Just to take us back in another piece of history here. So we're looking again as Mordecai the son, the son of Jair, who was the son of Shemaiah, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So the son of, of the Jewish nation living in, in the capital of the heathen empire. And no one around him knowing that he was Jewish. If you think back to Saul, who again would have been in Mordecai's lineage, Saul spared the king of Agag. And suffered greatly because of disobeying God in that way. What we'll come to find out, we know Haman is the bad guy in Esther. Haman coming from that same lineage is, is, is the king of Agag who Saul permitted to live. So here we have, however many hundreds of years later, this, this battle staged again a son of Saul versus a son of the king of Agag Saul not having obeyed not having completed the word of God he did the word of God allowing the enemy to live the enemy to coming back to again uh, try to control try to wipe out the people of God there's an analogy there. I wasn't going to get too, in, too much into application yet, but there's an analogy there for us. The things that we are called to overcome, the things that we are called to get rid of from our lives, figuratively put to death, if we don't, it's not like they're just going to sit there and be friends with us. They're going to come back again and again and be used uh, to cause us to stumble, to cause us to, to uh, turn, cause hardship. So the things that God says to defeat in our lives to uh, battle in our lives the sin issues we are called to be overcomers then and now and not wait a thousand years down the road 
or for us maybe 10 years down the road. Amen? So that's Mordecai the son. Let's look at Mordecai the father. Verse 7, chapter 2. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Esther, the heroine in, in the story, is uh, his cousin. Her parents die. She's left an orphan. He takes care of her and takes her in as his own daughter. He assumed, he assumed responsibility for her. It's interesting that he was a cousin uh, and not a closer relative. He likely could have let her be, uh, and no scrutiny would have been given to him for not having taken her in. And yet he chose to take her in. He chose to raise her like his own. He chose to uh, give of himself so that she could live. To me, one of the greatest themes in all of Christianity is that of adoption. Uh, obviously, it's personal to me because I am adopted, but I, I can't stress enough how important it is for us to understand, for us to study, for us to champion. See, in those days, if Esther had been left uh, on her own, if, she, if Mordecai had not chosen to adopt her, she likely would have been uh, put to use as a servant in somebody's house or basically become a slave. And similarly for us spiritually, we can either be left to our own accord and be slaves to sin, be slaves to ourselves, be slaves to this world, or we can choose to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and be adopted into the family of God. Adoption is key. For us, adoption was key in this book. Romans 8, 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption, a key theme throughout the history of the redemption story, that providence of God threaded throughout. So here we have Mordecai, a son, in Saul's lineage, a Benjaminite, a Jew who was hiding his identity, yet knew enough or loved enough or, or, or wanted to serve enough to adopt Esther, his cousin, and raise her, serve her in that. We see Mordecai now as the protector uh, throughout the story of Esther. If we look in, in chapter 2, 11, it says, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. <coughs> Again, the story is Esther uh, as a beautiful woman, the king needing to fill the place of the queen. Uh, to me, it was not a beauty contest as some preachers would, would put out there, but rather a forceful taking of the beautiful uh, daughters in the kingdom uh, for the purpose of the king. And it was not this uh, beautiful, glorious, fun, uh, vain thing that they did. But likely it was literally a tearing of the, uh, uh, away from the, the families and all that they knew and all that was comfortable for these young women. 
at the order of the king, you must come to the court and become a part of his harem. And it wasn't just, let's see who, who looks good and, and who the king might want, and then we'll get rid of the others and let them go home. It was, you are now a part of the king's harem. And so four years, a different woman every night, it took until Esther's turn came. Not four years, a year, sorry. Um, and it wasn't like the other girls got to go home. It was they were still part of the court, still there, just not uh, being appointed as the queen, as, as the favored woman in the king's harem. So Mordecai, being that fatherly figure, would uh, check in on Esther in every day of her preparation, go by the, the, the gate of the court of the king. And look to the servants and look to the officials that would be passing through and, and try to get any word he could. Have you heard from Esther? Have you seen her? Is she doing okay? Is she getting fed right? Has she been treated okay? When's her turn? So Esther is, uh, goes into the king. She finds favor with the king. She becomes queen. Mordecai uh, then is allowed into the court, likely because of Esther, uh, maybe even because of Esther appointing him to some sort of position where he now has an official title and can uh, get that much closer into the uh, whole system. And so we go to verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, so they were the doorkeeper. They became angry and sought to lay hands on the king at Hazarus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That, by the way, is a historical fact. It's listed extra biblically in other books, other uh, records of history. So we see that Mordecai stayed with Esther throughout. He looked out for her best interest, and then even when the time came that she became queen, he wanted to remain close, and so he received an appointment into the king's court. He caught wind of this plot to assassinate King Hazarus, or Xerxes. Now, stop and think there. To us, at first glance, that's a heroic thing, and, and it still is. But you're a Jewish man in a foreign land, in a capital of the people who, who took you away, who destroyed your nation, destroyed your homeland. And you get wind that the king of that people, that heathen nation, who really is your enemy, is going to be assassinated. I don't know about you, but to be honest, I would probably be thinking twice if I actually want to give him warning or not. Now, we don't know if he did or not, if he, if he wrestled with that, but we, we know that he, he told Queen Esther and the, the plot was thwarted. And two conspirators were hanged. To me, that shows a, a certain level of integrity, a certain level of, of forward thinking. Maybe it was a better thing that King Ahasuerus stayed in power than somebody else. Maybe if King Ahasuerus is... Uh, defeated or killed, Queen Esther is no longer queen. But again, there's that thread of God's providence, even in such a thing as saving 
the leader of your enemies. We're, I promise we're going to tie this all up. Mordecai the legend. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. <coughs> so now in the book Esther, we have uh, Haman coming on scene, an Agagite, a historical enemy of the Jewish nation. When I first taught Esther, I taught it all in one shot one night uh, in home group or on a Wednesday night years ago. I I don't remember exactly what I did, but I crumpled up paper and put them under seats kind of like this. And uh, we started the night by saying, you know, every time I, I, I say the name Haman, uh, you guys as the audience get to jeer and, you know, want to ha- throw those paper balls as rocks and, you know, just get as a youth pastor at the time. So, you know, have more fun. And uh, whenever I would say Esther, uh, I would get you as the audience to to cheer, not jeer, to cheer. Yay. And we're not going to do that because what happened that night was instead of, you know, my normal 40, 30 or 40 minute message, it turned into about an hour and 10 minutes because, uh, again, Mordecai, Esther, Haman, they're, they're listed here several times. So every five seconds, it would be, ah, or ooh. It was a really fun message, though. <laughs> In your heads, you can be doing that as we go. So Haman is, you know, thumbs down and a boo, and Esther and Mordecai is, you know, a hearty cheer and, and uh, cause for celebration. So Haman comes on scene. Mordecai, uh, uh, this is, I can't think, disrespects. <laughs> Using all the slang today. Mordecai disrespects Haman. Haman. Haman rises to power likely because of the plot against the king and, and uh, the king's counselors being hanged. So Haman rises to power. Haman uh, is not a well-liked guy, so the, c- the command from the king is that people must bow to him. Uh, again, we can kind of dramatize things and say, you know, that was Mordecai's stand for God, but likely the culture of the day, it really wouldn't have been this crux of, conflict uh it would have been normal it would not have been a sin against god to bow in deference to an official uh to a king or to uh, one of his counselors but yet mordecai chooses not to we don't know why but mordecai comes to be known as that guy in the court who won't bow to haman and uh haman doesn't even notice for a time until somebody asks him well you know why do you think mordecai hates you so much that he won't bow. At that point, Haman is is made aware of Mordecai. Uh, hatred is built up. They find out that Mordecai is a Jew, so Haman directs all that hatred to Mordecai and the Jews. And that's kind of how we get the, the bad guy, if you will, in the story of Esther, the, the plot to basically wipe out the nation of Israel And Mordecai, along with Esther, is at the very center of all of this. If I had to guess, I think Mordecai had an inkling of who Haman was. I don't think Mordecai is to blame for the plot against the Jewish nation. 
I think that would have come in time one way or another. Haman had been, been raised basically second in command of the Persian Empire, stretching from uh, India to Ethiopia at the time. Powerful, powerful man. I don't think one man choosing not to bow would cause that kind of hatred and rage. And we know that historically and through his own lineage that Haman came from a people that traditionally hated the people of God. So my inference, the book of Seth, no, the commentary of Seth, is that is that Mordecai sparked something in Haman that was already there. And that the reason that, he, or that Mordecai did not bow was because of that very thing, because he recognized something in Haman that was evil. So as we know, the story goes, Haman plots to kill and wipe out the Jewish nation. He brings his plan to the king. The king signs off on it in such a way that the order cannot be reversed. Mordecai gets wind of this plot. Mordecai goes to Esther to warn her. There's an exchange and a time of waiting uh, during which Mordecai humbles himself and, and uh fasts and prays and, and, and weeps and mourns and ashes and sackcloth for his people. Esther goes to the king. She receives favor again. She says, if I receive favor in your sight, grant me this. And she tells of the plot. We're talking genocide. 1930s and 40s, Hitler wiping out every wanting to wipe out every member of the race of the Jewish nation. That wasn't new to them. That wasn't a surprise to them. That was something that had been, ha- that had, that been tried over and over again for the people of God. Going back to Esther, God giving Esther favor before the king Ahasuerus, Haman being put to death on the same gallows that he had raised to try to kill Mordecai. Mordecai then being raised to a counselor of the king of Persia, giving the authority to reverse, to send out a decree for the Jewish nation to rise up and defeat their enemies before the appointed day of their own annihilation. Mordecai, it's interesting, is is that he's actually, I believe, uh, mentioned more historically than even Esther. It's impossible to know if it's exactly the same Mordecai, but the uh, odds, if you will, uh, given other factors, the timing, the history, the, the details, uh, are that it's the same biblical Mordecai uh, that the historical books of Persia talk about. Basically, Mordecai would, would remain, become and remain the second in the king's command. So we end up there with somebody having favor in such a way that he, he now has the signet ring of the king, basically giving, being given all legal authority to the empire of Persia, 126 provinces, who seven, eight years prior was a man who hid his Jewish identity, 
who loved enough to take in his cousin, but didn't love God enough to serve him in, in following his commands and following his law. So what, how does this all tie together? I think the, the application isn't too far out of reach for us today. I think some of us can certainly identify with that slow start, that uh, reluctance to embrace who God has called us, who God has made us. Not just when we were unbelievers, but even as believers, learning what that means, learning who we've been called to be, learning who we've been made to be, and learning to embrace that, learning to wear that on our sleeve, learning to, to allow uh, the Spirit of God to transform our lives completely. And sometimes the enemy will come and try to lie and say, look where you started, look at who you are. You're nothing. You're too slow. You haven't grown enough. You don't know enough about God. You, you haven't spent enough time in his word, or you, you just don't get it, do you? And yet here the model and the story, at least for Mordecai, is that that's not the end of the story. That there will come a time where God calls you to act. And your obedience is key and paramount in that story, in your life. But as you obey, God will enable. God will bless you. God will give you favor. Even among your enemies. We're so quick to hear the lie of the enemy over our lives or from other people. Saying you're not enough. You're not good enough. Look at your family. Look at your stock. Look at where you came from. And yet time and time again in his word. We realize that that's exactly where God wanted us. So that he could redeem and transform. Mordecai's example to me is, is, is fun to see and fun to watch the progression through Esther. He as a father adopted Esther and took her as his own. He loved her and was completely devoted to her to the point where every day he would start or finish his day. At some point he would make time to go and check on her in the king's court. He loved her enough to continue to try to protect her through and in that situation to use that situation of her being taken and uh, forcibly, at least in some way, because the king is saying, I need all the virgins to come. I need to fill this place of the queen. Mordecai saw that and turned that situation, a bad situation, to something that uh, could be used. Or God took that, but Mordecai saw that for what it was. He started as a compromised man in the Jewish remnant, living with and as his heathen oppressors. But he rose to the challenge of the day. And to me, now he's remembered as one of the greats, as a Legend, if you will. He didn't live a life set apart to begin with. He didn't choose to return to the promised land, do, the God, do God's work in rebuilding the nation. 
But he did choose to adopt Esther. He did choose to remain devoted to her. And when the crux came, he chose to give godly counsel, wise counsel. When the time came, he humbled himself and he sat at the gate of the king in sackcloth and ashes, mourning for his nation, a nation he had disidentified with. Almost up to that point. We can put off learning to become sons and daughters, but there will be a time that comes that we have to embrace our adopted identity in Christ as his son, as his daughter, as his loved one. When we get to that point, hopefully most of us are already there. It will be time to run into what God has called us to be. It will be time for us to realize that we're not called to slavery, but we're called to sonship. That we're not called to fear, but we're called to adoption. Mordecai exemplified that in the Old Testament. We see it throughout the New Testament. I think we can learn, too, that though some of us may not have started well, maybe we came to God late in our lives. That is not a hindrance in our walk now. That is The past is the past. The call of God is before you. What matters is your obedience now, not your time as an unbeliever. We started talking, just me sharing my heart about what's going on in this world. We see a current events and, and these issues of race and identity. What's amazing to me is what's come out of Charleston isn't, though the media would try, uh, but isn't a, a core conversation about race. But if you have the eyes of the believer, what's come out of Charleston where nine people were murdered in their Bible study after having stood around in a circle with the man who had come to murder them for an hour and a half welcoming him into their fellowship. What's come out of Charleston isn't a dialogue among the Christian believers about race, but it has been a proclamation of who they are as sons and daughters of God. Families of the murdered saying, I forgive you. They understand that it's not about the color of their skin. It's not about their socioeconomic status. It's not about some societal attack or segregation or discrimination. Though those things exist, I'm not, I'm not discounting that, but 
they realize that what is core, what is essential to their identity is that they are son or they are daughter of the Most High God. And his will is to offer forgiveness even to his enemies. And so they follow suit. Mordecai came to understand who he was. Came to understand the battle and the war that was in play. The desire for evil to overcome good. And yet realizing that in God, that won't happen. So he chose to represent the God who created him, who called his nation to being who kept his nation even in times of darkness, who God threaded his providence throughout the story, including in the book of Esther, to forward his redemptive mission, to forward his kingdom to the end. We are a part of that redemption story. We are a part of that thread of providence even today and that's why our brothers and sisters who have lost nine people in our church can stand and forgive just days after tragedy they can stand with others in their in their city of all ethnicities and say we are one because we are in christ that's the story that's the testimony that's what needs to be proclaimed that's lord willing what we will come to live out and proclaim in our lives, regardless of the story, regardless of the means that we get there, but that we will obey because we understand who we are. We understand who God has created us to be. We understand the plot lines that we live in. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would communicate your word where it's been unclear or I've failed. Lord, Lord, we just give it all to you this morning. Help the men among us to, to live as godly fathers and father figures. To be willing to adopt in your name. To be willing to be fully devoted and love to your people to learn to be protectors, to be servants, to be wise counselors. To have eyes to see what's going around, going on around us. And Lord, when the time comes, help us to rise up and obey. Help us to uphold your kingdom to embrace your call. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would so understand our identity in you as sons and daughters. Lord, that any other distinction would, 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 would pale in comparison to that one fact that we are yours and you are mine, you are ours. And that God, when trial comes, we would stand in that. 
And when trial comes, that we would proclaim that. When trial comes, Lord, that we would live it. Live out your love. Live out your forgiveness. Live out your grace. Proclaim it from the rooftops. Lord, so that your will be done. Your kingdom come. You're so worthy. You're worthy of it all. Let's stand and close in worship this morning.